Today's scripture reading is Isaiah 54, 1 through 10, and 55, 1 through 13, found on page 596 of the Provided Bibles. Sing, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Burst into song, shout for joy, you who were never in labor. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. Do not be afraid. You will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. Wife who married young, only to be dejected, says your God. For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with deep compassion I will bring you back. In a surge of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. To me this is like the days of Noah, when I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth. So now I have sworn not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. And then in chapter 55, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why... Why spend money on what is not bread, and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me, listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations you do not know will come running to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper, and instead of the briars the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. This is the word of God. Did you ever encounter someone who is just plain old stingy? Did you ever encounter someone that you expect to be met with generosity, but instead what you find is stinginess. 
I used to be a pizza delivery boy, and often, I can't complain, very often, I was met with much, much generosity. As a pizza delivery boy, it's the best job because everybody loves the pizza man, the pizza guy, everybody, because you're bringing them pizza. And in my experience, even if you're bringing them cold pizza, that's, you know, it took too long to get there because you got lost on the way. Even if you're, you get the order wrong, they're so forgiving. They love you because you're bringing them pizza. And so most often, in, out of that great love for you as the pizza delivery guy, they open their heart and wallet to you with abundant tips, abundant generosity. And that's what I learned to expect then as a pizza delivery boy. But every once in a while, that expectation of abundant generosity isn't met and isn't realized. And what is found instead is what I, a little bit of stinginess. So, you know, every once in a while, you get to the door, you ring the doorbell, you got the order right, it's still hot pizza, you know, and they hand you a, you tell them that, that'll be 1366. And back in my day, there wasn't all credit cards. So, you know, they hand you a 20 and you pull out your, your wad of cash and dollar bills and uh, you sort of go slow waiting for those magical, magical words, especially to a college student who's working a summer job. Those magical words, keep the change. <laughs> so you're going slow, but those words haven't come yet. And you put the, the 20 they handed you in your pile, your handful of dollar bills and you start going counting out you know one dollar and change still no words five dollars and change still still nothing six dollars surely you'll hear it now but nothing and then you pull out your handful of change 25 cents 30 cents now you want the pennies really one penny, two pennies, three pennies, four pennies. Here's your change. <laughs> no tip. <laughs> we often think that God is stingy. We often think that God gives us a small, insufficient amount of blessing, and if there's more, then we, um, uh, you know, we have to, if he gives us more than we ought to get, we have to count out every penny to give back. That if we went for it on our own without God, we'd get more by ourselves than what we can get with him or from him. But Isaiah chapter 4 paints a totally different picture than what we often assume about God or the, 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 what we often uh, sort of live out of a perception of who God is. Isaiah chapter 54 is all about God's abundant, generous, irrepressible and extravagant commitment to bless his people. And the main idea of chapter 54 is that what God gives us is better than what we can get for ourselves. What God gives us is better than what we can get for ourselves. What God gives us is more abundant than what we can get for ourselves. What God gives us is it defies our expectations of what he might give us. Because he brings fruitfulness out of emptiness. He brings joy into sadness. He brings abundance into emptiness. And his blessing is more than we would even expect. And it comes in ways different than we'd expect. And it's better than what we would hope for. 
It's better than what we can get on our own apart from him. And if you look at the first part of chapter 54, verse 1, it says, Sing, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Burst into song, shout for joy, you who are never in labor. Just stop there and think about not just that that's a counterintuitive idea. Think about how cruel that is. This passage is commanding, telling a woman longing for children but not having any to sing and burst into song and shout for joy. That's cruel. And of course, this is just an image, but what the image is meant to convey is the incredible sadness of infertility. And if that's a sadness and a suffering that you've experienced, well, God desires to bring comfort into your life. See, it's cruel. It seems cruel what God is saying here. One writer puts it this way. It's cruel to ask a barren woman to sing unless you're able to offer her the only thing that will make her happy. But that's just what God is doing here. He's offering this woman who is filled with sadness and filled with unfulfilled longing. And he's offering delight and joy and fullness and satisfaction. And of course, this woman is God's people. He's offering God's people who have been reduced to emptiness. He's offering them fullness that will bring delight to their hearts and souls. Because the reason this barren woman is told to sing, the reason she can sing is because God is going to give her what she couldn't get on her own by her own strength or by her own doings or efforts or in her own way. God is going to multiply children to her because as it says in the, the rest of the verse, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. See, that's what God is saying. He is going to uh, multiply the longings of her heart and, and fulfillment and abundant blessing into, into this, this emptiness and sadness. See, God gives us more what we can't get for ourselves. God gives more when we rely on him than what we get apart from him. And that doesn't mean more worldly blessings, but it means the things of life that make life worth living. It means God himself. It means all of the spiritual and beyond spiritual, all of the blessings that God pours into our lives that come from his love for us. It means fulfillment and delight and joy in God, fulfillment that outlasts the fleeting circumstances of this life and fulfillment that outweighs the empty treasures of this world. And the backdrop of this image that Isaiah is using here in verse 1 is that is something that God does often throughout the Bible, that just as God could make Sarah more fruitful than Hagar when Sarah stopped trying to do things her own way apart from God, and just as God could grant the desires of Hannah's heart when she surrendered those desires up to God, so God can do that for all of his people. God can take us who are spiritually dead and empty apart from him and make us alive in him and pour out abundant blessings upon us when we surrender our desires to him. 
He can pour out blessings so abundant that they expose our capacity of receiving them as utterly inadequate. That's what he goes on to talk about in verse two. Verse two tells God's people to enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes for you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. You see, this continues the imagery that started in verse one of this um, desolate woman uh, who is promised abundant children and she's told then to get a bigger house. <laughs> Make your tent bigger because of all the abundant blessing that's gonna come your way. This woman, think, think about what an act of faith that is, right? This woman who has no children, who can't have children, is told to make her tent bigger to accommodate all these children. What an act of faith that is because she's told to make her tent bigger before any children are even on the way. She's gotta believe that God is gonna follow through on his promises. She's gotta believe that God is a God of promises who's always faithful to his promises. He's, she's gotta believe that God is gonna follow through on this promise to bring abundant fullness and blessing into her life and she has to act in light of that promise even while she's living during the pain of its unfulfillment. Do we act like and do we pray like we believe that God wants to bless us as his people. There's a verse in James chapter four, verse two. It's kind of a striking verse. You don't, it says, you don't have because you don't ask God. And I think that, can, that verse can be misinterpreted wi wildly, <laughs> but it still means something, right? You don't have because you don't ask God. And I was, I lis was listening to a sermon in the car the other day um, and the, the preacher in this sermon was talking about an airline promotion that where on a Christmas Day flight, the, the airline asked people, hey, what do you want for Christmas? They just sort of asked all the, I see some people recognizing this. Uh, I never heard of it before. They asked everybody on the flight, what do you want for Christmas? They just sort of, you know, as they were waiting for the flight, went around and asked people, and people said different things. One person said, they want $1,000 or something. I, don't, I don't actually don't know the things they asked for. Um, another person said they, you know, they wanted plane tickets to go somewhere cool or something like that uh, for vacation. Someone said they wanted socks. Someone said they wanted uh, a date night or something. Someone, you know, different things that people said they wanted. And then uh, the reason, though, they asked the, these customers this, unbeknownst to the customers, that while they were flying, the airline on the other end of the flight, bought these gifts, wrapped them, and had them waiting for these airline uh, flyers at that destination. So when they got off the plane, they got what they asked for for Christmas. And isn't that awesome? And I, in, in this preacher in this sermon I was listening to says, yeah, that's awesome for everyone except the guy who asked for socks. <laughs> and... <laughs> See, I can't come up with funny, cool things like that, but um, see, you don't have, because not, not because God doesn't want to give, and sure, God doesn't always give what we ask or in the way we ask, but what he gives is the good gift of a heavenly father who knows just what we need, so why don't we ask and have faith that he's not gonna respond with stinginess 
but he's gonna respond with his generosity and with his goodness and with his love. We're gonna have a congregational meeting uh, about a possible building later today, and I've been praying that God would enable us to get into a building without any debt. Will God do that? I don't know. But let's pray for that. And maybe if we ask, maybe God will give it to us. Our prayers don't obligate God. Can God do that? Yeah. Should we pray for that? Yeah. Maybe we should pray for more than that. But let's at least start there. Let's pray for that. The problem here in Isaiah 54 isn't that God is stingy, as though we have big pockets and God is dropping one penny at a time into them. The problem is the complete opposite of that. The problem is that we don't have pockets that are big enough for what God is pouring out. In other, that, that's, that's what verses two and three are about. Your capacity to receive God's blessing is too small. and we, He's telling us to make it bigger. Get a bigger tent to fill all those toddlers running around that God's gonna give you. Our capacity to receive God's blessing is too small. It's not that God's blessing is too small. There's a preacher's fable, uh, one of those stories that preachers tell that aren't true. It's about a beggar boy at a market who begs every day for some fruit from this market vendor. And every day the vendor drives him away. Get out of here, kid. Stop begging around here. But no matter how many times he's driven away, he keeps coming back day after day begging for some fruit. And finally, the vendor just gets so fed up with this boy's begging that in exasperation and frustration, he says, fine, just take some fruit and leave me alone. Don't come back. And the boy just stands there. You know, he expects the boy to take a handful of fruit, go off on his way, and not come back. But the boy just stands there and looks at him. So he says again, come on, just take it. What are you waiting for? Just take it and leave. But he just stands there and stares. And after many repeated attempts of finally fed up with frustration, the market vendor scoops up some fruit and piles it into the boy's arms so that the boy smiles And he asks in his frustration to the boy, why didn't you just take it? And the boy says, because your hands are bigger than mine. Do you believe that what God gives is more than what we can get for ourselves? What we get when we trust in God and look to God is more and better than what we can get apart from him. The problem isn't that he's stingy. The problem is that we look elsewhere for what only God gives. Do you believe that? That's, the whole, that's what the whole gospel is about. What we could get for ourselves was God's wrath and eternal displeasure. What God gives is eternal love and salvation in Jesus, our Savior. And in, in uh, verses four through 10, the rest of this chapter that we read, there's two contrasts here. There's the contrast between our former shame and our present honor in God, and there's a contrast between the passing nature of his anger towards his people and the permanence of his love towards his people. That God, in his love and grace, in verse four, takes away 
all our shame. It says, do not be afraid, you will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace, you will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood for your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He is the God of all the earth. You see, in the ancient world, this is a extension of that initial image. Childlessness was a particular and terrible shame in this context in, in Isaiah's day. And it meant, what it meant to somebody and what it meant about how society viewed that person was that person was a failure. That person was worthless. That person was especially sinful. It was a life of humiliation, great and terrible shame. And maybe some of us have had shame heaped upon us for one reason or another. Maybe some of us have been told that we are failures or worthless or broken beyond repair. For some of us, maybe the bare fact of our existence feels like a life of humiliation. But God promises to take that away in Jesus Christ. He pursues us by his grace. He washes away that shame and he clothes us with his love and he bestows upon us the honor and dignity of being called children of God. The exile was that shame for the people of God, but God redeems them and restores them to himself. In verse six, he goes on, the Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit, a wife who married young only to be rejected, says your God. For a brief moment, I abandoned you, but with deep compassion, I will bring you back. See, this imagery of marriage is significant. Back in chapter 50, God says that he sent his people away with a certificate of divorce. It says that God had divorced his people because of their sins, because of their desertion of the covenant they had entered into with him because of their radical unfaithfulness to it that, uh, that broke that covenant, God had rightly, in his justice, divorced them. But in his love, you see, he doesn't leave his people there. But he goes after them. And by this imagery of God pursuing, re-pursuing a marriage with his people, we see that he brings us back to himself and bonds himself to us in the most significant and deepest of ways. And in verse seven and eight, he goes on to talk about how his anger was a brief moment, but with deep compassion, he brings us back. In a surge of anger, he hid his face for a moment, but with everlasting kindness, he will have compassion on us, says God, our redeemer. See, God is moved to anger by our sin that destroys us and separates us from him and from his love. But that anger becomes something that passes and then seems momentary in comparison to the unceasing nature of his love. And that can only happen by what we saw in chapter 53, by the accomplished work of redemption of God's servant who suffered in our place for our sins, where God hid his face from his son so that he could turn his face towards us in love. His face that had been angry at us for our sins, now that our sins had been paid for, can turn towards us in kindness that lasts forever. 
that anger then is done away with. The cross is the only way that God's holy anger against our sins can become a passing thing. And it's the only way his love and kindness towards us can be an eternal, unceasing thing. It's because of what Jesus did. And that's the thing we need most in all of life, no matter what life throws our way. There's no guarantees of the good life in this life. But when God's face is no longer turned away from us in anger and rejection, but is turned towards us in everlasting kindness, then we can know that no matter what we face in life, no matter what happens, nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is ours through Jesus. In verse 10, he goes on to talk about that. Even if the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed. Mountains and hills are the most substantial, unshakable, permanent things in creation, right? But God is saying that they are unsubstantial. They're flimsy. They're fleeting compared to what he is talking about, compared to the substantial nature, compared to the unfleeting nature, the unceasing nature, the unshakable nature of his love for his children. God's love is unfailing. There's not much in life that will not fail you. Go ahead and try and put things to the test. There's not much in life that won't fail you given enough time that it will fade away or the right opportunity to abandon you for something better, or to turn against you when confronted with your failures and shortcomings. There's not much in life that won't in some way fail you. But God's love will not ever fail you. And so why wouldn't you take it? Why wouldn't you want it? Why wouldn't you receive it? Why wouldn't you view it as the most valuable thing in all the world and seek after it? And that's the point then of chapter 55. We're only going to look at the first few verses in chapter 55. But what we've seen is that God's done everything. Everything's accomplished. It's there for you to do. The only thing you can then do is to come and receive it. Come and receive it. Because, you know, God here in chapter 55, even sweetens the deal. It's not just that what God gives is better than what we could get on our, for ourselves, but he sweetens the deal because that better thing, that incomparable thing, that infinitely rich and full thing that God gives us, which is himself and his salvation and all the blessings that come along with that, he gives that away for free. Chapter 55, verse 1 and 2. Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread? And your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good. And you will delight in the richest affair. The broader context, as I mentioned, is that God's salvation in chapter 53 was accomplished by his servant, who is Jesus. He did everything that needed to be done. It's accomplished, it's ready, it's finished. But it's accomplished and ready and finished out there, in a sense. And what needs to happen is what's been accomplished needs to come in here. 
And that's why in this chapter, there's 12 imperative words in seven verses that are in, God is imploring his people, don't miss this. Come, buy, eat, listen, delight in, come, listen, seek. Don't miss it. You see, salvation doesn't happen by association. It requires personal participation. As long as it remains outside of it, of us, is useless to us. Faith is when God's accomplished salvation becomes internalized, received, and participated in. God has to enter into your life. God is imploring his people, don't miss out. Don't let it remain outside of you. Don't remain unaffected and unbenefited by it. See, God is a God who invites us. And God is a God who invites us to something that's beyond anything we can get for ourselves. An invitation, generally speaking, means your presence is wanted. God wants you to come to him. The God who made all the universe probably could occupy him with better things wants you to come to him. Your presence is wanted. Someone, you know, when you're invited to something, your presence is wanted. Someone's thrown a party, right? Someone's made all the preparations. They've prepared a feast. They've done the hard work of making all those preparations, gathering people together. God has done all of that. You don't even need to bring anything. It's not like one of those invitations that say, hey, come to my party. By the way, can you bring a giant cake to feed everybody dessert? Or it's not like a fellowship meal. Where, you know, no, you're, you're invited to the fellowship meal even if you didn't bring anything. Um, it's everything's all ready. You don't, need to, you don't even need to bring anything. There's no cost of admission because the invitation goes out to people who don't have anything to bring. See, we tend to associate free things with cheap things and expensive things with valuable things. But in God's economy, the thing of greatest value comes with no price and demands are all. And the things of this world that we tend to elevate, those things come with a great price, have no value, and strip us of all and leave us empty. They look like they'll satisfy. They look like they'll nourish us. And that's why in verse two it asks, why would you buy something that isn't even bread, that costs a lot of money, when God is offering you something that is the richest of delights for free? Other things look like they'll satisfy us, look like they'll nourish us. They demand everything from us and they leave us empty. But Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the living water. He alone quenches the thirsts of our souls. Everything else leaves us thirsty still, but Jesus brings satisfaction, and he gives it to those who have nothing to offer, nothing to bring, but those who come just to receive. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanks for your grace. We give you thanks for the abundant blessings that are ours in Christ. Help us to receive these. Help us to not miss out on them.
And help us to not believe that you're a stingy God who doesn't want our good. But help us to see how you have given your son for us. Why would you not also give us all things with him? Help us to remember that in Jesus, your face is turned towards us in love. That nothing can separate us from your love. Because your love never fails us. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.